you to turn tonight to the second book of Corinthians, the second letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and the thirteenth chapter, and the fifth verse. We're speaking tonight on the subject the preachers entitle it, The Unpardonable Sin. I believe that to be an unscriptural term. I believe what we have reference to is that act of God by which he reprobates, rejects a human being. I'm not criticizing the preachers for using the term. I used it myself. But I think it... Well, I know it doesn't occur in the Bible. I know it's a man-made term. And I want to ask you to think with me tonight on the Bible teaching of God's rejection, reprobation, and I wish to bring three marks that uh, stigmatize a person who is under God's rejection. David Wilkerson, a young Assembly of God preacher from Ohio who went to the sidewalks of New York and has been used of God to work with the dope heads and the sexual perverts and the just everything that's there, makes a startling statement. He's been dealing with this class of people long enough now to know a little something about what he's talking about. When we remember that one out of every seven people in New York City is a sexual pervert, a sodomite, when we remember there are over 70,000 male prostitutes walking the streets of New York City. When we read the newspapers of the scandal of like that is happening in our government, and when we face the fact of the multitudes of public preachers who have been discovered as being sodomites in the last few years, David Wilkerson makes this hair-raising, startling statement. I'm not smart enough to pass judgment on it. I just pass it on to you. This young man says that the folks in New York City that seem to be utterly out of reach of any hope are the people who were reared in so-called Christian homes made Christian professions and apostatized. That's some statement. My only conviction, and this doesn't make it so, but my conviction is, and I just share it with you, That so-called Christian America has been placed, at least for a season, 
under God's awful reprobation. Apostasy, as I understand it in the Bible, is repudiation of profession. And that's true now in America. Long since this generation of church people have repudiated all effort to prove that they are God's people by being God's instruments of redemption and by reproducing the character of the God who called them unto holiness. This generation of people in America haven't quit the churches. They still give a little money, still do good, and still try not to do bad, and still attend the services, at least when convenient. But long since they have been sealed in their refusal, bring forth the fruits that prove that they're the call of God. That individual who's concerned about his own salvation only has missed Christ. Did you get it? That individual who's just rejoicing that he's a child of God knows nothing about salvation. Salvation's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. God saves us. Not that we may go our way rejoicing, but that we may enter in to his redemptive task. And as I face the fact, and I think it is a fact, that the silliest thing that a preacher could ask anybody now is, don't you want to be saved? I am plead guilty to the fact that all the days I've been a preacher, and that word has become a joke. I was startled to read the other day about the professor in Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville stating that the evidence seems now to be clear that youngsters are proved now that they weren't old enough to have the slightest idea of what it means to be a Christian. That seems to be so, because there isn't a church, to my knowledge, anywhere now that has young people there elsewhere. Most mothers and fathers' hearts break within them over that awful indication that we've sought to make people good, maybe, but haven't been making people Christians in our churches. Now all of that is to say this. Long since American Christianity so-called has been guilty of doing exactly the same thing that the elect covenant nation of Israel did. Instead of accepting the responsibility of being called of God, they just rejoiced in themselves and passed by the world and 
thus were rejected as a nation themselves. A man who makes a statement like I'm going to make now, I guess, is crazy. But so-called Christianity today is not making people Christian. And for that reason, I have some trembling in my soul when I dare to make a statement as I've already made and I repeated. I believe with all of my soul that America is now a reprobate nation. I believe the word Ichabod has been written on the portals of the church buildings for the most part. And I believe with all of my soul that the average institution we call a church stands under the judgment of a holy God for not preaching a whole gospel, demanding the commitment of a whole person so that every time we have somebody added to us as you pass the praise, we've got somebody added to a group that have accepted Christ's commission as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. To go back on the clear call of Almighty God and to refuse to get in the battle is the apostasy of the New Testament. The book of Hebrews talks about men and women. After this wise, take heed, my brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief. And how is that evil heart of unbelief expressed in evidence? Not by refusing to go through the motions of what we call Christianity, but by departing from a living God. That's the apostasy of this hour. And God's answer to apostasy is reprobation and rejection. And for that reason, I read from 2 Corinthians 13 and 5, a verse that whether anybody else is interested in facing the tremendous implications of it, I would like to believe I'd like to face it. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Whether ye be in the faith, prove. Your own self. Elect yourself a committee of what? Leave the other fellow alone now. And examine yourselves and prove yourselves whether you be in the faith and do that work of examination and that work of, of proving in the light of this statement. Don't you know your own selves? How that Jesus Christ can choose, except you be reprobate. That's a scary verse of Scripture. I don't know that I got sense enough to dissect it. 
and put it dead certain it means 10,000 times more than I got sense enough spiritually and mentally to enter in. But at least as dumb as we are. On the face of it, there is some mighty good advice. Examine yourselves. You whether you're in the faith or not. Not whether you're going through all the motions and trying to be good and all of that. Whether you be in the faith prove yourself, prove yourself, and to do it with the knowledge that except to be in you, the living Christ, the reprobate. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, the last verse, therefore men shall call them reprobate silver. And the reason men shall call others reprobate silver, rejected, unusable silver, is because God's done something. The last half of the verse reads, because God hath rejected them. In the book of Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, there is a sentence that is tremendous in the context of the Lord's discussion about the attitude of the leaders of Israel. They'd accused them of being in league with the devil and casting out devils by the power of the prince, Beelzebub. And he talks to them about how it's silly to talk about Satan working against himself. And then he says in verse 28 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, Verily, I say unto you, All sin shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath Never forgiveness, but, and here is where the King James has committed terrible harm, and if you have a pencil, don't mind marking up your Bible, if you want to get the awful implication of what this scripture says, read it like this. After the word hath never forgiveness, read, hath committed an eternal sin. Hath committed an eternal sin has committed an eternal sin. What does that mean? It means that whatever this blasphemous treatment of the Holy Ghost is, that's where we preachers used to use the term the unpardonable sin, it does mean one thing, that a man who's guilty of it begins to reach the penalty in the result and secure the payoff of that sin right then. It means that a man whom God rejects goes to hell right there and lives in hell until he dies and then in hell forevermore. It is dead certain that hell is not confined to the next life. 
I've had men tell me I believe we'll have all the hell we'll ever have on this earth. We've got plenty, brother. And there's one scripture that's been true all the time. People don't seem to believe it. The way of the transgressor is hard. And there is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof is death. And there's a plenty of hell on earth now. You don't think so, talk to your policeman. You don't think so, talk to your doctor. You don't think so, talk to your lawyer. You don't think so, talk to your preacher. There's plenty of hell on the road to hell. But it's also true that heaven isn't confined to the next life. Brother, the old song where Jesus is, that's heaven. And there's a plenty of heaven on the road to heaven, thank God. But the implication of this verse is that men and women can come to the place that they began in this life to endure H-E-L-L hell, separation from God. For when God rejects a man, that means exactly what it means. It means courage. That old proverb, while there's life, there's hope. Maybe good preaching, but it's just not so. No, there's hope for an individual, spiritually speaking, as long as he's not under the rejection of a thrice holy God. But to be rejected of God is to be condemned to hell from that power He's committed the man who sins. God meets with this utter reprobation, enters the awful pangs of separation from God immediately. The scriptures speak of three classes of men. The people call the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That people call the children of wrath. And that people call the sons of hell. There are three classes of people in the world. It is not true to say that all men have as their father Satan. Oh, no. All men have as their father to start with, not Satan. And men are children of God's wrath. But sin never is static. It always develops and grows. And the, the entire book of John, the first several chapters... It's just a running story of the conflict between the Son of the living God and the sons of hell. When my Lord will look them in the face in John's Gospel in chapter 8 and say, Ye of your father the devil, he's talking about people like David Wilkerson's talking about New York City against much light. They have repudiated, they have rejected, and they've been met 
by the judgment of a holy God. And that character has been crystallized and set, and they are characterized or character-wise called children of their father the devil. For them there's no hope. It is interesting, especially for people who seek to preach the sovereign grace of God, to understand the difference in the way the Lord will treat people in the Gospel of John. To some people, he opens the door as wide as between the eternities. But to these sons of hell, he has nothing but condemnation, no open door. The door's been closed. He'll look him in the face and say, You need to get snooty with me. And he's talking to this class of people when he says, No man can come to me except the Father draw me. They're gone. They're gone. They're gone. The old time theologians used to say, By we of a parallel to the three classes of people, those people who call children of God have been made the subjects and the recipients of the redeeming grace of God. They're saved by God's grace. Then they said those people who call in the Scripture children of wrath are the subjects of God's common grace. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust and causes the sun to shine on the good and the bad. Shows mercy, the Bible says, to all of his works. In that sense, these people, so said the old-time Bible preachers, and rightly so, have not yet been saved, but they've not yet been rejected. Humanly speaking, they are savable. It is possible they may come to know Christ. And then the old-time preachers said, with reference to these, whom the Lord calls children of that father, the devil, character-wise, or addressed as sons of hell or sons of Satan, crystallized in their character. They are under no grace. They are under God's awful reprobation. I wonder how it is with you tonight. One of the most solemn things that public preacher at least faces and makes him feel a little keenly is that when everything's been said, not undoing too much now and time to go into it too much, but there is a there is a limit to what a human can do for another. I can pray for a lost man and preach to him. Maybe by God's grace I can weep over him. Maybe I can witness to him. But there comes a time when one human has to stop, he's gone as far as he can go. And this matter becomes a very lonely proposition just between a person 
and Almighty God. And if there's a union formed there, there's just two people present, Almighty God and the sinner, in the right? And that carries with it a deeper implication when everything's been said and done. There is only one person in this congregation tonight that I know anything at all really about in connection with whether or not you're a child of God or a child of wrath or a son of hell. I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, an unsaved man has got any sense can live as moral a life as a Christian. you believe that? Many of them do. An unsaved man can do what we call good. There's so much difference between being moral and being Christian. There's so much difference between being good and being Christian. To be a Christian means to be committed to Christ's purpose of redemption. God bless you, Lord. You say, well, he lives a good life, the best life that was lived on the street. Miss Barnett and I lived in for years in Winston-Salem. The highest moral life on that street was by a confirmed Orthodox Jew who wouldn't even let you talk to him about Christ. I'm trying to say this. This is a lonely proposition. Brother, just between us girls, if you're not deeply concerned about your relationship or lack of relationship to Christ, you're in bad shape because I can't get but just so far to you. I have stuff. I can't get inside of I don't know. I can't tell you you're saved. I'm not God. whether anybody else is saved or not. I'm not God. That's so. Here's an individual. It had nothing to do with being born physically. With exceptions that prove the rule, you'll not decide the hour of your death. And between that time, you between the eternities. Who can be dead certain about yourself? I can't. Oh, I'd say, well, he lives a better life than somebody else, but that don't mean anything. That don't mean anything. Christianity is not being good. That isn't it. The mission of the gospel is not to make men good, it's to make men Christian. It's a lonely thing. Only you have been committed to you has been committed. This business of examining your 
I can't examine you, you for you. God didn't give me that job. I ain't smart enough. You have to do that. Are you a child of God? A committed person. Somebody who's not your own. Somebody who belong to yourself. And you sign yourself away to another. That's Christianity. Are you a person? Doing good and going through the motions, but not utterly committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you cannot be committed to him and not be committed to what he came to do and what he's doing now. The mission of Christ and the mission of the church must never be separated. Are you committed? Or are you just going through the motion? Just going through the motion. I don't know. Or are you a son of hell? Character long since so crystallized that you've been rejected. I don't know. There's three marks of one whom God has reprobated and rejected. Let me briefly give them to you. I want to mention just two of them quickly. Brief there briefly on one. A man is rejected. A woman has been reprobated, turned over to hell in this life. No hope for it. Give it. When the means by which God resists your own evil nature do not any longer work, when the means by which your holy God resists, restrains that devil inside of you, if you please. When they no longer work, you can put it down. You're under God's rejection. And that's a scary sign of this age. I'm old enough to remember when there used to be things that were wrong. For I reckon there's nothing wrong now. I've lived long enough to see America turn from an immoral nation almost to an unmoral nation. You just don't have any moral good or bad. That's out the window. The Bible tells us there are five great things that a loving God gives to men and women to make life livable, to restrain the beast within them and to resist that awful nature. They're what the old theologians call God's common graces. 
And they are to mention them first, heavenly given wisdom, chapter 1 of Romans. They are to mention in the second place, heavenly given knowledge of God. The book of Romans treats it. And the book of Romans, chapter 1, speaks of the third gift of the God of all grace. Not only does he give men wisdom, not only does he give men knowledge, but he gives them natural affections. You got a good job. That doesn't lead you to Christ. You can put down, but you're in a state of reprobation. Has God prospered you, given you a happy home, given you a lovely family? That in use of God to restrain you and resist the beast in you, make you favorably inclined toward the claims of God in Christ. You betcha. And in America, the more prosperous we get, the more prosperous we get, the more God has blessed us. The more goodbye to holiness and goodbye to commitment. And hello to formality and going through the motions, whittling God down to where we can be comfortable with our God and be laws unto ourselves. A man's in a bad shape if God's given him a good wife and lovely children, a good job, and a nice place to live. And that hadn't been used of God to lead him to Christ. Do you know that? And then the Bible speaks in the book of Romans chapter 2 of the gift of God called a conscience. It isn't native to man. It's a gift of God. And all men have this gift as they do all of these common graces. And they use their blessed gifts of God, every one of them. They're his gracious gifts to all men to restrain them For it is still true that by the goodness of God he leads men to repentance. And if the goodness of God doesn't lead men to repentance, if he brings his judgment, it isn't to get you to repent, it's to punish. But the scriptures talk about how men deal with conscience. And I'll not take the time, but it starts out with a defiled conscience. But the conscience doesn't stay defiled and just go on a little while sinning against it and it'll get what the Bible calls evil. It's malicious. And then after a while it'll become sinner, coat it over. And after a while it'll arrive at the place according to Romans chapter 2 and verse 15, I think it is, where your conscience got gift given of God to accuse you. Instead of accusing you now, that gift of God you've so defiled it and smeared it and sinned against it that it excuses you. There's hope for a man when he's wrong and he'll admit it. Amen? But there's no hope for a man when he's wrong and he, he defends it. It's terrible enough to sin, but ten times more terrible to refuse to admit it. Did you know it? To seek to hide it and cover it up. 
When a man's conscience, that gift that God gives him, Isaiah says, it's a little voice that speaks behind your left ear. You're going down, you've got to make the decision, the road forks, you've got to go one way or the other. And a man's conscience says, don't go that way, go that way. You know what I'm talking about? And when a man's conscience excuses him, instead of accuses him, He's a dead duck. He's a dead duck. The second mark of a reprobate, I've already preached on it, they're without conscience. Accusing, no, excusing. The fifth gift of God's common grace is the terror of human government. Romans 13. We do well to remember now that human government was ordained of God. The mayor of the city is going to have to answer to God not only for his acts as a human being, but for his acts as a servant of Almighty God. The policeman don't have to give an account to God, not only for I acted as a human being, but he's a servant of God. The officers of the law, they're gifts of God. And they are meant to produce terror to the lawbreaker so that you can walk home from service tonight without getting killed, maybe. That's a gift of God. These precious gifts of God have been trampled under the feet today. Wisdom! Wisdom is being used in the world now to try to banish God from His world. Knowledge is being used of God now to produce a generation who frankly says we have no need of God. We get along without Him. Natural affection is now another occasion for turning the grace of God into lascivious living. Conscience now excuses us instead of accuses Nobody's afraid of the law anymore. These are gifts of God. They used of God out of His goodness to all men. God's call from above. The marks of a reprobate. Those graces and gifts of God. For the good of men, no longer accomplish that whereunto they are sent. That means God's rejected. When the conscience comes to the place it excuses instead of accuses, the man's under God's rejection. And the third mark of God's rejection is the most solemn thing this preacher's ever faced. 
I made an opening remarks. I said, I believe American so-called Christianity has been placed under God's reprobation. Why? Ladies and gentlemen, better listen to me a little while now. I cannot invade your spiritual privacy. I cannot sit in judgment on any man, because I don't know. I just pose this solemn fact. The most terrible mark of this age, nationwide, churchwide, individual-wide, is the silence of God. To be put under God's silence. To be put under God's silence. It looks like that God has gone fishing and said, let America alone. I do not hear men screaming in agony for the mercy of God even as much as this little preacher used to hear. And I can't find anybody that has lately. I do not see God break heart with the truth of his word. I do not see the Spirit of God stand up even as I used to. And I can't find any preachers that don't have to tell the same tale. Not trying to find an alibi. I think of Mordecai Ham, the greatest prophet the South ever knew. The last 25 years of his life, he couldn't get a corporate guard to hear him. And the power of God had gone elsewhere. He came, I remember one time now, down this country to the city of Huntington, where you have six. God had used him to turn that city upside down. He came back and they'd forgotten him, weren't interested, and he couldn't get a corporal's guard. I can think of Ash, your pastor, one minute, repeat the messages we had in the park. Things happened in the park. I didn't do anything God did. Things are awful quiet now, Brother Mayhem. God help us. Everybody done got religion, told God goodbye. And it looked like God said, okay. I'm not fixing to quit. I'm racking my brain. What the God can we do? For saying unto God to confess. We've been doing everything except making Christians out of people, evidently. And I ask God for his mercy and cry to him for his wisdom. And stand alive, everybody we can. Under God we must have so sinned in this nation, check wise and ever otherwise. God has marked us for the most terrible mark that God can place on any nation, a church, or individual, anything else. Let's just quit talking to us. You ever have a fuss with your wife? Bad enough fuss that ain't half as bad. You get so mad you won't talk. You ever do that? That's awful. Oh, my soul. The silence of God. Looks like he's not speaking that voice from him. 
the cranky thing to work in I've seen men have to be carried out of the meetings and stretches so deeply convicted of sin as God called them, and so deep in their refusal that be stricken couldn't walk. I've seen them couldn't get up out of the seats. I've seen a little evidence in past days that there was a living God and that he was disturbing men and crossing their path and wailing them. Seems mighty still now, brother. Did you read the story? Being written of that French, that Jewish man, Dreyfus, Alfred Dreyfus. I think history revealed that he was trapped and was innocent, but he was sentenced to imprisonment on Devil's Island. And for seven long years, he never heard the sound of a human voice. Fellow bringing something to eat. Wouldn't speak to him. No guard, no visitors, nobody was allowed to speak to him for seven years in a little old cell. Nothing to read, nothing to do. He heard the sound of a human voice not one time. Until he would beg and plead for the guard to bring him a glass of water. To speak to the silence of God. The silence of God. When God rejects the man, he quits talking to him. We're not Roman Catholics. We don't believe there are any priests around here that got any magic powers. We believe that God speaks to an individual. In the New Testament, 167 times, the word C-A-L-L, called, God called me, to be put under the silence of God. He don't talk anymore. There's no voice from heaven. You hear my voice, but not his voice. And if mine's the only one anybody ever hears, I got no power in my voice. The silence of God is the most scary thing about this day we live in. I'm going to ask you something. God still talk to you? That's a serious question. You ever hear from God? That's a serious question. This is tremendously significant because men are saved as God calls and speaks to them. The scriptures will say them he also called. The gospel came not in word only but in power and in the Holy Spirit and much assurance. The scriptures say many hear it, believe. The scriptures say faith cometh by hearing hearing by the Word of God. That's not the Bible. That's God speaking through the Bible. That's actually hearing from a living God. That's how faith is robbed in men and women, not apart from it. 
to be put under God's silence is not to hear from God anymore. Not to hear from God anymore. When I was pastor in New Mexico, they told me this true incident. It actually happened 30 miles away from the little county seat town where I passed him many years ago. Lived a rancher and his wife, little two and a half year old boy. And their nearest neighbor was some 16, 17 miles away out in the plains of New Mexico in the plain country. One morning the father had to be away from home all day. He told his wife, goodbye and rain saints. He'd take care of himself that day, and then he took his little two-and-a-half-year-old boy up in his arms and said, Now, Jimmy, don't go for the old well while Daddy's gone. There too before, he'd noticed there's an old well had been used for years and had it covered, but he happened to notice the boards were rotting, and he'd just been busy, and he's going to get to it, but he hadn't got to it, and he had to go away, and he, he said, Johnny, Jimmy, don't, don't go by the old well while Daddy's gone. The boards are getting rotten, and, and they might not hold you. Well, he left, and of course, that's why the mother got busy, and little Johnny disappeared, and little Johnny did whatever little Jimmy did, whatever little Jimmy will do. One thing be dead certain, he'll break his neck. He'll do it or die. You be sure and tell him not to do something, and he'll do it or die. And first thing you know, the mother missed him, and she called and searched, and directly here she went. And sure enough, little Jimmy won't find out if Daddy told the truth, and he'd gone to the old well and make sure he jumped up and down on those old rotten planks, and sure enough, his Daddy told the truth, and the little boy fell in the old well, and he fell with his arms pinioned like this, and the well had been used in many years. And he went down several feet with his arms pinioned to him, and then the well was small enough that kept him there was, just lost there. And he's so far down that his mother couldn't get to him. And she found him, and he was crying. She was by herself, and she couldn't get to him. She went to the corral and got a lap rope and tried to wiggle it around, but the little boys arms were pinioned to his side he couldn't help fasten it around and she couldn't get the rope around him. There's no way to reach him. No way to reach him. She went to call the central in the county seat and told of her predicament and central got in touch with the sheriff and the sheriff got some men and they piled some, some uh, shovels and picks in the car and yeah, they went as fast as they could 30 miles to where the tragedy was and finally they got there and the sheriff sort of acted as the foreman and they looked the situation over and there wasn't a way on her. They could get to the little boy from upstairs. There he was. And the sheriff said, we'll have to dig and get under him. And they went over here and they dug frantically. Finally they got out even and then they began to dig that way and one of the old bugs off a plank had fallen on the little boy's head and they once in a while they could give their mama old bug on my head old bug on my head. There was helpless, precious, helpless, precious, helpless. And the folks upstairs couldn't get to him. Here the dog, here the dog, 
finally they reached in and got the little boy by the legs and pulled him. Placed him in the sheriff's arms. And he gave the little boy into the arms of his mother. But he was dead. The weight of his little body when he'd fallen down in the well, dislodged that old loose dirt or something. And as they worked, they could actually feel the earth closing in. That little boy's body was crushed. One cause. One precious. It wasn't because they didn't try to get to him. They got to him too late. The only way God got, listen to me. According to the Bible, the only way God got. To reach a man, savingly, is to call him. To call him. Meanwhile, men are in the prison house of sin. And sin crushes and crushes and closes in. God can't reach you by calling you. He can't reach you. And if he quits calling, you go. You go. Mr. Spurgeon preached the gospel. Little thirteen year old boy used to sit and listen to Mr. Spurgeon. He'd lean over this way. One day the warden of the church went out and the curiosity was around. He couldn't stand in alone and he went to touch the little boy on the shoulder of the congregation again and said, Sonny, why do you sit so uncomfortably while I pass the preachers? The little boy said, My mama said, If I'm ever saved, it'll be when God calls me. And she said, God calls men through the gospel. And I pass the preachers of the gospel. And if God ever calls me, I want to be hearing him. That's good advice, folks. That's good advice. The only way God's got to reach people is to speak to them. Amen. He calls men how? Through the gospel. He preaches the gospel how? Through lips of clay. Oh, my soul. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com. 
by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.